0: Brothers and sisters, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading all of chapter 7 of the book of Acts, verses 1 through 60. Uh, The title of the sermon today is Stephen the Martyr. Um, Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him (laughs) to his land, this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles. And gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now... A famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers. He sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh, then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died He and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. Till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian, for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, men you are brethren, why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Rimfan, images which you made to worship. And I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling. For the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However. The most high does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says. Heaven is my throne. And earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me? Says the Lord. Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become, the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right Hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. Amen, amen. amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so as we come to this particular Portion of the book of Acts, we want to try to make sense of Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin. You recall from the prior section in the book of Acts that he has been serving as the leader of the proto deacons, uh, taking care of distributing food to those in need, a respected man, a beloved man, a leader who's wise and filled with faith and filled with the Holy Spirit and even had been uh, challenged and been able to defend the word of god with great might they couldn't they couldn't refute what he had to say but they lied about him they told lies about him and brought him before the sanhedrin just like what happened to jesus and so now here is his defense to the sanhedrin and we want to try to make sense why does stephen say what he says why does he go through the history of israel what is he pointing them to see And, of course, what are we we to see in this? And ultimately, I think the question is, who is this man Stephen? What is it that's so special about him? And can we learn from him? Can we grow and become more like him in our lives today? Looking at the overall shape of this passage, Matthew Henry says, uh, points us to two main parts And in the first part, he breaks it down into multiple parts. Matthew Henry says, One, his defense of himself before the council, in answer to the matters and things he stood charged with, the scope of which is to show that it was no blasphemy against God, nor any injury at all to the glory of his name, to say that the temple should be destroyed and the customs of the ceremonial law changed. And within this section... One, he shows this by going over the history of the Old Testament and observing that God never intended to confine his favors to that place or that ceremonial law, and that they had no reason to expect that he should. For the people of the Jews had always been a provoking people and had forfeited the privileges of their peculiarity. Nay, that the holy place and that law were but figures of good things to come, and it was no disparagement at all to them to say that they must give place to better things. And then, within this same section, number two, he applies this to those that prosecuted him and sat in judgment upon him, sharply reproving them for their wickedness by which they had brought upon themselves the ruin of their place and nation and then could not bear to hear of it. And then the second major head in his defense is the putting, or in this story, And the response is the putting of him to death by stoning him and his patient, cheerful, pious submission to it. So that's what we'll look at today. Stephen has been accused of blasphemy against the temple. Recall what they lied, the lies they told. Blasphemy against the temple and against Moses and the customs of the law. They've twisted his teaching. And in his defense, Stephen shows how the Jews have turned their eyes away from God, away from God's glory. To gaze upon the signs, to gaze upon the law and the signs instead. They've stopped worshiping God in spirit and truth. Loving the signs, the Jews have come to hate the substance. Most particularly now, they've come to hate the very Messiah and his people. And the Messiah and his people must be destroyed because these Jews will not abide the signs. They will not abide the signs to be replaced by their Messiah. But the followers of Jesus say Jesus is more important than the temple. The followers of Jesus point to Jesus. He is the temple fulfilled. And so Stephen looked to Christ and all of the teaching of the New Testament, all of the teaching of the apostles and of the Old Testament points to Christ as the fulfillment of of all of these things that they had come to idolize. As we read in our reading in Isaiah chapter 1. These very sacrifices that they were commanded to give. God rejected. They would become burdensome to him. Because they were not worshipping God. They were worshipping their system. And this is certainly something that we need to consider as well in our day. Commentary says. Stephen tells them that all external rights which God gave by the hand of Moses, were fashioned according to the heavenly pattern. This is Calvin. Whereupon it follows that the ceremonial law is referred unto another end, and that those deal foolishly and disorderly who omit the truth and stay only in the signs. So these good gifts that God has given to us, what we now call the means of grace, can become the objects of our worship. Our systems can become the objects of our worship, and we can turn our gaze away from God. So we'll look today at Stephen the martyr. The first section is his defense, the Old Testament history. We'll go through and look at the key points that he makes in verses 1 through 50, and then his application of this whole story to apostate Judaism of the time, and then we'll see their response, his stoning, and we'll see the beauty of his response to being martyred, and then we'll see what we can learn today to grow. So, moving right into this. Verses 1 through 8 are about Abraham. Let's look at the key texts here. First he says, brethren and fathers. I hope we'll note Stephen embraces his connection with these Jewish leaders. These very ones who would shortly murder him and who had murdered Christ. Being also a fellow Jew with them within the covenant at that time. He had an objective covenantal connection with them. Their apostasy cannot give him justification to be disrespectful. He respects them in their position that they hold at that time. And this demonstrates the connection between worship and love. I hope that we'll see throughout all of this that Stephen is a man worshiping Christ moment by moment. The whole thing is framed with his worship. He has the face of an angel, as we saw last week. He is focused upon Christ. At all times. This is a man who walks in the worship of God. And we see love is connected with that. Next we see God's faithfulness to Abraham is by grace. Verse 5 says, But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. It's by promise. Verse 8 says, Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. What did Abraham have? Before God gave it to him, nothing. Before Moses was born, before the law was given at Sinai, before the tabernacle, before the temple, God chose out Abraham to bless him, to give him the promised land, and to give him the blessings of the covenant of circumcision. God had blessed Noah and delivered him from a world of destruction and sin and misery and brought him into a new world, and very shortly after they had turn their back on him again. So it's another Noah kind of story. God reaches in. God takes Abraham. And God, in his grace, delivers him. The people of God are in God's care and blessing, not because of the temple or the law or because of Moses' greatness, but simply, brothers and sisters, because of God's grace. And so Stephen is laying out this Story of grace. The history of the Old Testament is a story of God's loving kindness to His people who do not deserve it. Who deserve to be grouped in with all of the other rebels who would be destroyed by Him. It's a story of God's grace. Those in grace are able to see God's grace and to extol His many mercies and kindnesses. But see, those who do not see life according to grace are unable to see the grace. So next, verses 9-16, through 16, the same themes are de- demonstrated to us in the patriarchs in e- Egypt. The next uh, theme to be brought out is the sin of those who rebel against God. The sin of the fathers. And the patriarchs becoming envious sold Joseph into Egypt. So you know where this is going. He's going to bring all of these things and say, and you do the same thing. Stephen introduces the theme of unfaithfulness toward God and violence towards God's favored ones. In the same way that they would have killed Joseph, Jesus was killed and Stephen will be killed. He he says, our fathers, and it's another example of his respectfulness. He includes himself along with the Jewish leaders, all of them together, looking back. And if they could all see with the right eyes, they would all be in unified worship and service together at that time. Again, because Stephen is looking to Christ, because he's filled with faith, because the Holy Spirit dwells in him, he's worshiping God and he's appreciative of God's grace. And so he's able to be humble and say to these evil leaders, our fathers. He knows that he's not delivered from his sin because he's better than these apostate leaders. He knows God has just had grace on him. So he says, our fathers. Next we see God's gracious faithfulness to Joseph. Joseph didn't earn his position. He didn't build his way into favor. God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house.
1: Oh, rulers of Israel,
0: can't you see that everything we have is of God's grace? You're missing it. Look, Joseph didn't get to where he was able to obtain leadership and power and influence because he was so great. Because of his own works. It was because of God's favor. Was he a great man? Yes. But it was God's favor. He wants them to see this. And he goes through all the history for them to see this. In love and mercy... God saved Abraham's offspring via Joseph's position in Egypt. So Joseph is placed in that spot graciously and through that, God graciously saves those very ones who wanted him dead. Gracious kindness from God is again and again on display in in the Old Testament history if you just have eyes to see it. The patriarchs repented and they were brought into God's blessing by God's kindness. You know, one commentary talks about perhaps Stephen was going to really go through this whole gospel presentation for them. Because when you read this, it seems like he gets cut off. He had so much that he wanted to show them, more in the history, to call them, like the patriarchs, to come into repentance. The same kind of work that would have been done by John and Peter and the other apostles when they were before the Sanhedrin. Commentary says, he still reminds them of the mean beginning of the Jewish nation. As a check to their priding themselves in the glories of that nation, and that it was by a miracle of mercy that they were raised up out of nothing to what they were, from so small a number to be so great a nation. But if they answer not the intention of their being so raised, they can expect no other than to be destroyed. The prophets frequently put them in mind of the bringing of them out of Egypt, as an aggravation of their contempt of the law of God. And here it is urged upon them as an aggravation of their contempt. Of the gospel of Christ. So we see faith that's granted from heaven. Remembers that it is all of God. Stephen was filled with faith. He remembered that everything that he had. And everything that Israel had throughout their history. Was all of God. First to last. Unbelief. Takes personal credit. And forgets the history of grace. And, and you can actually see that. People who do not walk in faith will look back over history and they will remake history in their own image. They'll make it a humanistic history, a history about our own efforts, a history about our own abilities, a history pointing to our own greatness instead of looking back and seeing God's kindness over and over again to humanity. Next, the same themes are brought out through God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. First, we see God's providential grace in Moses' birth and his upbringing. Think about this man, Moses. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God and was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. What a special man. And all of it of God's grace and providential kindness we see God's gracious initiative to save His people out of Egypt. Listen to verses 30-34. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. See, we're seeing what God is doing. Stephen wants them to see, look at what God did. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. And the God of Jacob and Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. The story of the deliverance of the people of God is the story of God's initiating grace. Next, in his birth, Upbringing and calling, I hope we'll see that Moses rests under God's grace and mercy. Moses should be an example of God's grace and kindness, pointing us to behave similarly. If they really were looking to Moses and to be like Moses, they would love grace. They would love mercy. They would rejoice in God's kindness. And they would not get stuck in the system and embrace it as if it was some form of self-justification. They would see the system that God had given them the whole glorious temple system as pointing to their Messiah. And they would be able to worship God in spirit and truth in the midst of it instead of turning it into a system of idolatry. The Jews of that time have missed God's repetitive grace throughout history. They don't see His kindness in the history that they say that they cherish so much. Brothers and sisters, when you hear the word Moses, I hope you will think of God's grace. Think of God's kindness. Do you know what his name means? It means drawn out. So his mom, his, the daughter of Pharaoh who raised him, not his birth mother, she named him Moses, which means drawn out. He was there. Would he have survived probably in that river? If she hadn't reached in and was he going to swim out? Was he going to throw on some scuba gear himself? And No, he was not a super baby. He was a dead baby. If God had not drawn him out in mercy. And that's a picture of what God does for all of us. It's a picture of what God has done for His people throughout history. It is a picture of all of redemptive history right there. When you hear Moses think of God's grace. And they'd missed they'd miss this. In this section, the sin of the fathers is again emphasized. Stephen says these words, This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. You see what Stephen is doing? He's bringing in through this power of suggestion what they are doing. Stephen not only displays the sinful rejection of Moses, but also now he begins to point the finger at the current Jewish leadership and their treatment of Christ. commentary says, Now by this example Stephen would intimate to the council that this Jesus whom they now refused as their fathers did Moses saying who made thee a prophet and a king who gave thee this authority even this same has God advanced to be a prince and a savior, a ruler and a deliverer as the apostles had told them a while ago back in chapter 5. That the stone which the builders refused was become the headstone in the corner back in chapter 4. You see unbelief and pride can only reject God and His messengers. And, and Pete, Stephen is, is laying out this reality for them to see. And, and it really makes sense that his hope is not just to defend himself, but to bring them to repentance. He's giving them an extended version of the gospel and helping them to see, Oh, look, you're in this position now. But they don't even, he doesn't even get to the end of presenting the gospel to them before they... They can't take any more of it. They won't have any more of it. Next we see Israel's rebellion against God laid out by Stephen in verses 37 through 43. The first thing we want to see in this section is that Christ was predicted by Moses. And so the connection between Moses and Christ, Stephen could have chosen a number of verses, but he chooses this verse to bring together very clearly Moses and Christ and the way Moses was treated and the way Christ has been treated. Verse 37 says, This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. So Christ's similarity to Moses has many points that we could look at. He's similar to Christ. Christ is similar to Moses. Moses is similar to Christ in many points. But the emphasis here in this section is upon how both Moses and Christ are rejected. By rebellious Israel. The hard-hearted rebels reject Moses and return to idolatry. That's what we see in verses 39 and 40. Whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So to reject God's grace leads to a life of idolatry. And Stephen's laying this out for them to see. And destruction and captivity will be the end result of this. You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch. This is verse 43. And the star of your God, Rimphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Stephen's been accused of blasphemy against the temple because he taught of its coming destruction. And yet here Stephen brings up the theme of God's wrath present in the history of the Jews. The temple had been destroyed once before. They had experienced God's wrath in this kind of way in the past. This serves as an indirect response by Stephen to this accusation. If God did this in the past, He may well do it again. So He's laying out for them that what He is teaching, what He was preaching to them, is nothing different than what God had already done in the past, to a stiff-necked people who refused him. And he shows them how turning their back on God leads to idolatry, which leads to apostasy, and great sin, great lawlessness, and righteous judgment and destruction upon them. Next section, he turns their attention to the true tabernacle, the true temple of God. They had been making all these claims about the temple and their love for the temple and how he was blaspheming God by saying what he said about the temple. Well, what is the true temple? Stephen wants them to remember what God himself has said. In verse 44, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, so the heavenly substance of the sign is being emphasized by Stephen. He's he's hoping to get the Jewish leaders back, get their focus off this building made with human hands and on the heavenly temple made by the hand of God that none can assail. Destroying an earthly temple is of no consequence to the status of God's temple in heaven. Mount Zion cannot be assailed and its throne room stands secure and safe forever and ever, and therein do we dwell in Christ. There we must fix our gaze. And this is this is where Stephen's taking them, and it's where hopefully we will all be, day in and day out as well. So, where does God dwell? However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house? you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? So these Jews had just stubbornly taken their focus off of God and His glory and they had fixed their gaze upon the temple and the, the beauty and the ornate nature of the temple. The same kind of confusion that we see in the apostles' question to Jesus when, he, when they look at the temple and they say, wow, isn't this amazing? <coughs> They're focusing... On the law of God in the wrong way, they're focusing on Moses in the wrong way. And again, here's the idea: losing the substance for the sign. Isn't it amazing that all of the wickedness and rebellion of the people of Israel and much of the wickedness and rebellion of the people of God throughout history can be brought down into that phrase: losing the substance for the sign? Praise be to God for the bread and the wine that we will share today. But you know in the Reformation and even in our confession, there's not to be any holding up of the elements that might lead to some kind of worship of the bread or the wine itself. Right? So these are the kinds of things that are happening still today in Roman Catholicism and in Eastern Orthodoxy where these elements are held up and worshipped as they should not be. That's another uh, f- a full discussion for another day. The idea though, the point is this summarizes so much of unfaithfulness throughout history losing the substance for the son. And then what does that lead to? Idolatry. What does that lead to? Apostasy, lawlessness, and destruction walking in the same path of wickedness as the sinful fathers did. This is an easy way to understand history. Faith looks brothers and sisters, it's such a cliche kind of phrase, but it's so rich. Faith looks to God. That's what faith, when God gives us faith, it means we look to Him. Christ is the only mediator between man and God. And what happens is these signs in false religion become mediators to us. We think we need these things in order to be close to God, and we, come, we can come to worship these things. Knowing the means of grace are gifts of God. His good gifts to us. To help us stay fixed upon God and His glory. The means of grace are meant to help us to stay fixed upon heaven. Right? Commentary says, As the earth is full of His glory and is therefore His temple, so the earth is or shall be full of His praise. And all the ends of the earth shall fear Him. And upon this account it is His temple. There was therefore no reflection at all upon this holy place, however they might take it, to say that Jesus should destroy this temple and set up another into which all nations should be admitted. And it would not seem strange to those who considered that scripture, that scripture which Stephen here quotes from Isaiah 66, which as it expressed God's comparative contempt of the external part of his service, so it plainly foretold the rejection of the unbelieving Jews And the welcome of the Gentiles that were of a contrite spirit into the church. So Stephen now turns the corner and these themes which he's presented that have been occurring throughout history, particularly the theme of rebellion and rejection of God, he points it to the leaders. And it's the same kind of pattern that we've seen from prior encounters with the Sanhedrin. And they would end with, and you crucified him. And you're the one who murdered him. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. Of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not... Kept it. So notice the transition first from our fathers to your fathers. This is not contrary to humility. This is accurate, distinguishing the line of faith and service to God from the the line of unbelief and violence towards God and his people. Like their fathers, they have stubborn and unregenerate hearts, their father is the devil. Unable to hear and love the truth. Choosing to hate God and His messengers. Even betraying and killing their own foretold Messiah. Instead of loving and keeping the law. The law given by their Messiah. The law meant to help them love their Messiah. They break it even as they proclaim they love it. Even as they're killing their bulls and their lambs. These are offensive actions to God. commentary says instead it says they had been the betrayers and murderers of the just one himself as peter had told them they had hired judas to betray him and had in a manner forced pilate to condemn him and therefore it is charged upon them that they were his betrayers and murderers thus they were the genuine seed of those who slew the prophets that foretold his coming which by slaying jesus they showed they would have done what they would have done If they had lived back then, and thus, just as our Savior had told them, they brought upon themselves the guilt of the blood of all the prophets. To which of the prophets would those have shown any respect who had no regard to the Son of God Himself? So Stephen lays it out clearly for them. At this point in time, it's similar to the prior types of engagements we've seen in the two prior episodes before the Sanhedrin, something's different this time. Verse 54, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. This word cut to the heart here is the same word used in chapter 5. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. So they've been wanting to kill them for quite some time. You recall Gamaliel kind of steered them away from that for a moment but now there's this popular uprising in place and their own rebellion reaches this furied crescendo at this point in time and it's as if they cannot resist the violence that flows out of them. And their hard hearts are proven by their response to Stephen's rebuke. Instead of repenting, they explode with anger, malice, and violence. So unbelief shows itself in prideful, and spiteful response to rebuke. We all see this in our own hearts, don't we? When someone comes and tries to help us see our own sin, we don't want to just say, oh, wow, let me pray about that, think about that. We're like, well, oh, what's wrong with you? Well, it's, it's, this is the height of that. This is the, the pinnacle of that kind of pride. And it leads not just to questioning someone else's character, but it leads in this situation to murder. How does Stephen respond to this? This is, I think, one of the key spots for us to learn from. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So all of all, I think if we can pause and think of this moment, think of everything that Stephen has said up to this point about the purpose of Old Testament history and what Old Testament history reveals in God's grace and what genuine worship is and the purpose of all of redemptive history. That purpose is on display in this scene. If we'll pause and think about what's happening here. Receiving from God the outpoured Holy Spirit Indwelled by God. So Stephen is this little temple. He's full of faith. Is what we're told. He is a little tabernacle. A glowing temple for all to see. Don't forget the tongues of fire. That were on their heads. That pointed us to the idea. That we're each little tabernacles of God. He is a glowing temple. On display for all to see. With his angel face. He's a little temple. As are you. And all of those who trust in Christ, indwelled by His Spirit. He is this living temple precisely because His gaze is set upon the true temple in heaven. He has been granted life from heaven. And that life from heaven by the Spirit comes out of Him as worship. And gazing back to the very heaven from whence His life flows No veil separates Stephen at this point. He sees God's glory in the heavenly dwelling. That's what Stephen sees. With faith open to sight. Now this is a point of difference between us and Stephen. He actually saw with his eyes. He saw it. So with his faith open to sight. He shows the apostate Jews exactly what he's been teaching them about history's purpose. He demonstrates to them what the whole thing is all about. It's not about earthly representations of heaven. Good gifts from God. Good gifts from God. But these are types. It's about God Himself in heaven as our focus. It's about God Himself in heaven as our focus. Stephen sees Jesus standing up at God's right hand. Heaven's favor is upon him as he is crowned with the glory of Christ's suffering. It's a simple message. The focus is to be God. Our focus is to be upon God. And everything in life that God gives to us is for the purpose of helping us fix our gaze upon Christ, like Stephen shows us in this scene. Commentary says he is usually said to sit there But Stephen sees Christ standing there as one more than ordinarily concerned at present for his suffering servant. He stood up as a judge to plead his cause against his persecutors. He is raised up out of his holy habitation, comes out of his place to punish. He stands ready to receive him and crown him, and in the meantime to give him a prospect of the joy set before him. So this is Matthew Henry commenting on perhaps why Jesus stood. Jesus is standing. Next Uh, Henry says, this was intended for the encouragement of Stephen. He sees Christ is for him, and then no matter who is against him. When our Lord Jesus was in his agony, an angel appeared to him, strengthening him, but Stephen had Christ himself appearing to him. Note here, brothers and sisters, nothing so comfortable to dying saints, nor so animating to suffering saints, as to see Jesus at the right hand of God. And blessed be God by faith, we may see Him there. And I think that last phrase is really important for us as we consider application. Blessed be God by faith, we may see Him there. We may trust that our Savior is at God's right hand and that He is reigning and that we can look to Him and He also sees us. He is with us as well. Well, here comes unrestrained unbelief. This murderous rage that we see here is reminiscent, I think, of much of the murderous madness that we see around us in our world today. They cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Stephen's worship of God, note this, Stephen's worship of God finally drives the apostate Jews into this rabid, uncontrolled frenzy of bloodlust. They scream. They cover their ears. They refuse to hear him. And they rush on him. Think of it. His worship is more offensive than his words. His worship of Christ is more offensive than his description of Christ. And so as one crazy crowd, they grab him, they rush on him, they throw him out of the city, and they kill him. And they kill him by throwing stones at him. They pick up stones, one at a time, And one blow at a time, one stone hitting him at a time, he dies through that form of execution. It's worth noting that as we see Stephen's response. It's also worth noting that Saul is present and he acted in accord with the sinful chaos of murder. And I think it's important for us to pause and think about what this means. It means anybody can be saved by grace. Anyone can be saved by God's grace. In chapter 20, Paul says, And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. So at the very least, we can say that the mention of Saul is a way of God encouraging all to come to him. Even if you are amongst those who murdered Christ. So here we see the beauty of Stephen. They stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. With each thump of the stones upon his body, he was continuing to put out prayers of praise to God. Each moment of pain led to more prayers, it looks like. Each persecuting stone led to more prayers for his persecutors, it looks. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. When he had said this, he fell asleep. So as in life was Stephen in his death, he worshipped God as he was murdered. Do you think that Stephen would have suddenly started worshipping God if he hadn't already been worshipping God? His is a life of worship, a life of faith, a life of walking in the presence of God. Just like Stephen, just like Jesus, Stephen's spirit was already in God's presence before he died. And he entrusted his spirit into the Lord's care at his death, just like he had already been doing. Brothers and sisters, worshiping saints die in peace. You want to be ready for death? Worship God. Worship God. Fix your eyes upon Him. Stephen demonstrates Christ's mercy and love. Asking the Lord not to charge His murderers with their sin. It's what what Jesus, same, same sentiment that Jesus expressed on the cross when He prayed. Brothers and sisters, worshiping saints forgive their enemies and pray for them. Worshiping saints, those with their eyes fixed upon Christ, fixed upon His grace, understanding that history is the story of God's gracious love towards His people and who walk in gratitude and thankfulness to God fixed upon Him, worshiping Him, those people, they forgive their enemies and they pray for them. Commentary says, Death is but a sleep to good people, not the sleep of the soul. Stephen had given that up into Christ's hand. But the sleep of the body. It is its rest from all its griefs and toils. It is perfect ease from toil and pain. Stephen died as much in a hurry as ever any man did, and yet when he died, he fell asleep. He applied himself to his dying work with as much composure of mind as if he had been going to sleep. It was but closing his eyes and dying. So observe this. He fell asleep when he was praying for his persecutors. He fell asleep in death as he was praying for his persecutors. It is expressed as if he he thought he could not die in peace until he had done this prayer. It contributes very much to our dying comfortably to die in charity with all men. We are are then found of Christ in peace. Let not the Son of Life go down upon our wrath. He fell asleep. The Latin adds, In the Lord, in the embraces of His love. If he thus sleep, he shall do well. And he, and we too, if if like him, shall awake again in the morning of the resurrection. So praise be to God for the, the life and the death of Stephen. Who doesn't look forward to meeting him someday and conversing with him and getting to know him? What can we learn from him? How can we be like him? Where do we need to grow up? To be more like him. And of course we want to be like him. Because don't we just see him walking in the path of Christ. Don't we see him exemplifying the life of Jesus. In him and through him. As he's filled with faith. As he's filled with the spirit. Jesus living in and through him. So what do we see? Well I think first we see the beauty. And the power. Of the life of faith. The beauty and the power. The power. Of a life of faith. He was a servant. We see that. He was beloved. He was humble. He had gentleness. Could he have been respected as a servant to widows. If he didn't have that gentleness. And that approachability. And that lowliness. He was a leader. He was trusted. He was diligent. Could he have been singled out as the leader of these proto-deacons. If he weren't trustworthy and diligent. He's a preacher and a teacher of God's Word. He's bold. He's mighty, not just in the knowledge of Scripture, but in the use of Scripture, in his argumentation, in his wisdom. They could not overcome him. He was courageous. He did not give way to fear. The Sanhedrin, he knew, had the power to kill him. He did not give way to fear. He pressed forward in faith. He did not give way to deception, When the disputers came against him, he stood in the truth. In his death, he was both bold and meek. This is beauty and power woven together. We've talked about this before. We saw this multiple times in the life of Christ as we were looking at him. This combination of boldness and humility is only from God. He had love true Christian love towards his murderers. He desired for them to be forgiven and for them to be saved from their sins, like Saul ultimately was. This is the display of beauty and power in the life of faith. But, you know, you can't see this kind of life displayed unless, if you will, the feet of faith are standing on Mount Zion. So Stephen shows us that the life of faith flows from the worship of God, the praise of God. And and we'll have daily habits. Stephen surely had these daily habits of worshiping God that he desired to have in place and that over time probably naturally were in place because of his love for God, because of his growing awareness of who Jesus is, because of his growing understanding And worship of God. What did he do? He looked to Christ. He drank from the fountain every day. The fire of heaven lit his soul. And he loved God. He was filled with gratitude towards God. Because of what God had done for him. Because of what God had done for him. And because of who God is. Stephen was linked into heaven. Focused upon him. Worshipping Him, praising Him, trusting Him, resting in His life, in His death, in His resurrection, in His reign, in His righteousness. Focused upon Him. Can we make too much of God? Stephen shows us a man who's daily making more of God. And he looked beyond the signs to Christ. He, looked beyond, he didn't despise the temple. He was grateful for the temple. He didn't despise Moses. He loved Moses as a man of grace. He didn't despise the law of God. He loved the law as a way to love God. All of these things as ways to know and to love God. You know, you have to wonder if Stephen wasn't there after Christ's resurrection participating, enjoying those great teachings that Jesus gave during that time and the gratitude that He would have had towards Christ as His Savior. Brothers and sisters, I hope that each one of you have pondered what Jesus has done for you upon the cross and that you would think of His suffering and the blood that He has shed for you as you consider the life that you will live and that you would look to Him and that you would praise Him in His glory and His beauty in his majesty and his mercy displayed. Now, at God's right hand, your Savior has died for you. Would you live a life of worship towards him? Maybe a life of martyrdom. Who knows? But either way, will you live a life of worship towards him, day in and day out? Will you build your life schedule on worshiping him? Will you consider your ways and be mindful of your thoughts, and your actions, and how you spend your moments, and your hours, and your days. And will you fix your gaze upon Him? Like last week, I'll end with a a single, or with with Scripture application, but I'll choose just a single one. We've read it in our liturgy the last few weeks, and I recommended it to you last week as well. I hope you will memorize it. Psalm 73, 25, and 26, it may be true of us that we could say this in sincerity Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our God in heaven, we acknowledge that in our flesh we are like the stiff-necked Jews who turned away from You and who wanted to pridefully take credit for their place. They wanted to believe that their righteousness was their own. Lord, we're like that too. We admit, Lord, that we have pride and unbelief and that we are not like Christ in those ways. And so, Lord, we look to Stephen and we thank You for his example of Christ-likeness and we do ask you, Father, that you would bless us to live the beautiful and powerful life of faith as we simply worship you and drink from heaven's fountain and feast on your goodness day in and day out. Oh, God, bless us that the means of grace would indeed be profitable to us to know you and to love you more and to be made more like Christ, our glorious Savior and King, in whose name we pray.